Hello, and welcome to the Tartan Tardigrade. This is a podcast brought to you by the UK Centre for Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. In the podcast, we talk to astrobiologists from around the world about their research, their careers, and anything else that comes to mind. This time, our guest was Magnus Ivoshin from the Natural History Museum of Stockholm. And he was speaking to Sean McMahon and Adam Stevens in November of 2018. We're very pleased to welcome Magnus Ivoshin to Edinburgh. Magnus is, is, a, is a world expert on the fossil record of microorganisms that live in subsurface habitats. So I'm a sort of paleobiologist, geobiologist, um, working on the deep biosphere. And I guess I've been doing this for the last 15 years now. I um, started to become... So I also, I'm actually a trained geologist from the beginning. I did my master in as a, a geologist. And then during my PhD, I turned more and more into the dark side and became like more biologically uh, focused um, and ended up working on these type of fossils in, in, in volcanic rocks and deep settings. What is the deep biosphere? The deep biosphere is um, life, microbial life living in deep settings. Uh, it can be either in sediments, it can be in rocks, but uh, it's deep, deep life. How, how deep is deep? can be anything from a few meters to several kilometers. So in continental areas, for instance, we find the deepest, uh, I mean, if you should say record, is like five kilometers in a mine, in a gold mine in South Africa. And in um, uh, marine environments, we find fossils at least at one kilometers below the seafloor. Alive ones at one kilometer, one point five. So it's deep. And so, so those fossils from those deep, deep places you're talking about—that's what you're currently looking at. Right, right. That's what we're working on right now. Trying to characterize them, um, trying to understand what type of microbes they once were, and what they were doing down there. And um, yeah, surprisingly, many of them are fungi. So not extreme prokaryotes like bacteria or archaea, but actually extreme eukaryotes. Why is that surprising? Well, looking at it today, it's not surprising. But it was surprising when we found them, because everyone just expected that prokaryotes were the only ones that could survive these sort of extreme conditions. Um, so I think that is what that is the reason why it was... In, uh, so, surprising but um, I mean looking at it today it's why not and you you told us a little bit today about uh, you've been involved with NASA working groups and things like that mm -hmm. um, which is obviously why we've got you uh, part of the reason why we've got you across to talk about astrobiology Can you tell us about how you got involved with those uh, I basically got a call more or less from Tully Sandstott 
he told me that they were assembling this group on Rock Hosted Life and asked me if I wanted to join. Uh, I mean, of course, they want to be in a part in a group like that. So, yeah, so we had a couple of online meetings uh, and then a few meetings in, in uh, real life in Pasadena. Um, so basically we just put together people from different areas working on rock coastal life, both alive life and fossilized life and try to come up with a strategy what to look for and where to look when we go to Mars. So that's using the work that you do here on Earth to kind of think about what the equivalents would be on Mars. Right, you're right. So we used, um, uh, in this case, we used the subsea floor crust and the oceanic crust as sort of an analog to what we could find um, on Mars, uh, really old um, settings on Mars. Um, volcanic rocks that at some point had been in contact with um, uh, water, both circulating underground water, uh, but also uh, being covered by lakes or ocean-like uh, bodies of water. If you see a region of Mars in orbital imagery that you can tell from the clay minerals or the other minerals present must have experienced interaction with liquid water, does that necessarily mean that the water flowing through that rock was at a temperature or otherwise um, characterised by conditions that life could have existed in? It doesn't have to be. Um, I mean, we we can't see from orbit if it's uh, if the temperatures, for instance, have been favourable for life. So even if we find, let's say, a volcanic rock that is just packed with carbonate veins. Those carbonate veins could have been formed from hydrothermal uh, fluids of hundreds of degrees, so mm. not favorable for life. So that is, of course, um, hard to say. If, if you find a lot of clays, though, that uh, suggests lower temperatures and also like zeolites to some extent and so on. So from orbit, you can get a hint of what you expect, but you can never be really sure. Mm. In your in your talk today, you kind of talked about the dichotomy between sedimentary fossils and like fossils in igneous rocks, which mm. you kind of explained are possibly more important for Mars. Although obviously we've we, you also talked about the missions that we've got that are going to sedimentary environments. Yeah. So kind of what, is it all important, or do you think there's one thing we should be focusing on? I think uh, we shouldn't focus on one thing. We should focus on all type of environment. And maybe that is too much for one mission, of course. But I, I think even though I talked a lot about Ignis Rock today, I don't sort of exclude the possibility that sedimentary rocks are, are uninteresting. De definitely, I think we can find interesting stuff in there as well. Um, but what I experienced at NASA was that there is a like a very sharp um, edge between these two uh, these two groups or these two mm. interests, okay. uh, which I find a bit yeah 
not frustrating, but it's it's interesting, I should say. And, and uh, I think it's it's we shouldn't really divide these environments in this way. Um, because there could be evidence of a deep biosphere even in sedimentary rocks. Definitely, definitely. Could so you mentioned earlier that the deep biosphere was an extreme environment. Apart from being extremely deep, mm. in what other ways is it an extreme environment? Mm. Yeah, extreme environment is something we use when we're trying to get money. So. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds cool. No, but it's uh, it's it can be extreme in the sense of um, it's poor in nutrients, it's oligotrophic. Uh, I mean, in some settings, temperatures can be quite extreme. Um, uh, when it's associated with volcanic eruptions, you have a lot of gases that, for us at least, are extreme. For microbes, it might be the other way around, actually, that they are favored by a lot of hydrogen, methane, and sulfates, and so on. Um, so, I should, yeah, I shouldn't use the word extreme, but to us, it's extreme. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah. You started off as a geologist, mm -hmm. just straight geology, your particular kind, and then how did you end up becoming more towards the biological end? Uh, so I did my master on a couple of drill cores from Pacific Ocean. I was supposed to look at the alteration, uh, hydrothermal alteration of these rocks. Um, and the master was pretty straightforward, but during the master I found these weird structures that I didn't know what it was. And I, um, a year later, I started my PhD on a completely different subject, or not completely different, but not on this subject. And um, a few months later, I went to my supervisor and said, look, can't I look at these structures instead? And he said, sure, go ahead. So I sort of changed direction on my, on my PhD based on these small structures I found. And, and those turned out to be the fossils. So it was sort of a, I had a hunch when I saw them, uh, sort of a gut feeling that we talked about earlier today. And uh, it turned out to be correct, actually. Did you find it quite a natural change of direction or did you have to learn loads of new biology? I definitely had to learn a lot. Uh, I mean, I was a pretty straightforward geologist from the beginning. So I had to go through all these textbooks about microbiology, uh, ordinary biology, uh, yeah, I basically had to uh, learn a lot about, especially microbiology. And um, uh, also later on, when I found out that it was fungi, I had to sort of become more or less like a mycologist. I had to learn a lot, read a lot about mycology. So, yeah, it was a sh large change, I would say, but interesting. Interesting parallel to. Susanna last time as well. Yeah, and the I same think thing a, happened to. A lot of astrobiologists have been on some version of that journey where they've had to quite quickly absorb a new field in order to um, see the links between what they know well from their previous education and uh, whether it's geology, biology, chemistry, astronomy. And also just how one serendipitous kind of thing that you're not expecting can lead you in a whole mm. different direction. I think I it's probably it's true that geologists tend to have certain preconceptions about how biology works, which are maybe 100 years out of date, and probably the same is true in the other direction. And a lot of learning a new subject from the perspective of 
another one is just overcoming the misconceptions that you've actually been taught at some point. Mm, right. I think, I mean, from a ge geologist's perspective, I've always found that microbiologists and biologists have a hard time trusting ge geologists. <laughs> so I have spent like the last 10 years just trying to convince biologists that, look, this is biology. Mm. We should actually look for the live ones. So we now we've found the fossil ones. We should actually go for the live ones. And yeah, it takes time to convince microbiologists. But and you've ended up doing some microbiology yourself. Yeah. Now I, I mean, no one else is doing it, so I have to do it. <laughs> so now I'm turning even more to the dark side and working on biology and um, live biology. So I'm working on cultures from from deep continental crust. Which is exciting. I have to learn a lot of stuff in uh, clinical biology. It's it's pretty tough. <laughs> Do you think if there had, if there was or is a deep biosphere on Mars, it would be substantially different in its ecology from the deep biosphere on Earth? For example, is it plausible to expect fungi to have pr proliferated in the Martian crust or something like them? Uh, I think that. If we're talking about deep biosphere today, it would be probably quite different, uh, considering the lack of oxygen um, for a long, long time. Um, otherwise, I think the geochemical conditions are more or less the same. Of course, there are differences, but uh, I mean, when it comes to fossilization and so on, all, all these kind of organisms. It, would be pretty similar to what we see on, on Earth. But, uh, I mean, fungi on Mars, sure, that would work. If, if there's uh, enough organic matter for them to eat, I think it would work. I mean, we do know that there are anox uh, anaerobic fungi around now, so, yeah, why not? Would it be cool to find a Martian <laughs> fungi? <laughs> That's a nature paper, right? Yeah. yeah, it's either a nature paper or a Hollywood film. Yeah. <laughs> You've gone through different things um, and and been involved in some cool projects. If you could pick out one one tip for for other researchers who maybe wanted to do the same kind of stuff as you, what would that what would that major thing um, be? Follow your curiosity, I would say. <laughs> that's uh, that's what I've done. My during my career, I just done what I think is interesting and what I what I find is curious. You know? So, yeah, I would. That's my advice. Follow your curiosity. So you've been involved in some extremely provocative and even controversial papers, um, like the report of fungus-like filaments fossilized in a volcanic rock that was. 2.4 billion years old, mm -hmm. which is much older than we had previously thought fungi were. What's, yeah. what's, what's it been like dealing with such a controversial subject and having to confront disagreement possibly from many sides? Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> well, w when before, I mean, during the process when you work on these type of samples, like the one that you uh, mentioned, um, 
you know from the beginning that this will be controversial. So you, you put in more efforts, to be honest, in these papers than you do in other papers because you have to really uh, be as sure as you can uh, that what, what you're suggesting is correct. Um, so I think that is one of the things that we prepare more uh, before one of those sort of controversial papers. But I, I think when it comes to disagreement from colleagues and researchers, I just find that intriguing and interesting. That's, this is what science is all about, right? Uh, you should never take anything personal. Uh, that's, that's, that's not a good thing. So uh, I think you have to have like a, I don't know, like Teflon skin, you just have, if you, I mean, you will get some really nasty comments. That's just part of the game. Mm. But just let it flow. <laughs> Don't take it personal. Uh, so it's uh, it's part of the game, I think. But um, but in all this criticism and and these comments you get, there are always some sort of core or something really good that you can uh, take with you. So yeah. Don't take it personal. That's yes or no. Do you think there is or have ever has been life on Mars? Oh no. <laughs> I have to say no. That's fine. And what would you do if we find some? I would uh, open the champagne and uh, celebrate. But I am pessimistic. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> we should say. So, yeah, thanks Thank very, you much, very much. much. That was Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Tartan Tardigrade. If you'd like to find out more about the UK Centre for Astrobiology or astrobiology in general, you can visit our website at astrobiology.ac.uk. You'll also find links there to the other episodes of the podcast and a link where you can subscribe via the University of Edinburgh podcast service. In our next episode, we hear from Axel Hagerman, a planetary scientist from the University of Stirling.